Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Alex Lickerman from Imagine MD. Alex, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. You know, what we seek to do here on this show is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. Sound like uh, something you'd like to help with? I would like to help with that. All right. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you and Imagine MD, so our audience has a little bit of context about uh, who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into the interview. So Dr. Alex Lickerman is a University of Chicago trained primary care physician, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and founder of Imagine MD, a direct primary care medical practice located in downtown Chicago. Imagine MD works with self-insured and fully insured businesses and their benefits consultants to help lower healthcare costs and improve the access to and quality of healthcare for their employees. This enables businesses to attract and retain top talent as well as increase productivity and reduce absenteeism, all to increase the value of the business itself. Okay. So Alex, you're not the typical person we interview on this show because you're a physician. I'm excited to get your perspective here. Cool. So we have a healthcare system that is kind of like an insatiable beast that continues to consume more and more of our disposable income. I'm looking at a, a stat here recently from the, uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation that indicates about three in 10 adults report someone in their household has problems paying for medical bills. And of those people, seven in 10 report cutting back, spending on food, clothing, or basic household needs. So clearly we've got a problem. So in your words, to start us off at the, the macro level, what do you think is wrong with our healthcare system and why do healthcare costs continue to rise at the rate that they do? That's a big question because there's a lot of things wrong with our healthcare system, as you know. Um, so where do I start? Uh, I think the first problem is that there's a very much a lack of transparency in healthcare pricing. And so since you have third parties who typically are paying most of the healthcare bills, the insurance companies usually, they don't disclose their prices so that consumers, meaning patients, cannot shop around and can't get the cheapest price. And in fact, often aren't thinking about that because of the moral hazard, meaning they're not responsible for most of the, of the cost of their care. They're rightly mostly concerned with the quality of their care, and especially when they're sick, to get better is what they want. And so that creates a system where, um, you know, pricing is not, there, there really isn't a market and, and there isn't a, a way that, that patients can shop around and ask themselves uh, where the best quality is. They typically are trusting their primary care provider or the, whatever doctor they're seeing to sort of guide them through the healthcare system and aren't even really thinking about costs. You have a consumer not thinking about costs is one of the problems. And then you have incentives in the system among hospitals, physicians, and insurance companies that are jacking prices up. So physicians are incentivized to bring you in to see you when you have a problem rather than say, take care of something over the phone if they could, because they can't charge you if they're just taking care of you over the phone. Right. They're incentivized to bring you in. Because of the evolution of the fee-for-service system and the reimbursement rates that most insurance companies provide primary care, and in fact, even specialty care, for primary care physicians to survive, they've had to pile thousands and thousands of patients into their patient panels. The minimum you'll typically see is around 2,500 patients per physician, primary care physician. I've seen it go as high as 4,000. And the unintended consequence of that is that they have 15.7 minutes to spend with every patient. And you can't get them on the phone. Your access to those, uh, your primary care physician who's, who is supposed to be the captain of the ship is really poor. 
So people overutilize the healthcare system in the most expensive way. They go to the ER for headaches, which are often mostly benign. They go for ankle sprains. Right. Or they skip their primary care physician altogether and go to specialists whose care is more expensive and who tend to offer the tools they have, which are uh, often invasive and expensive. The contention uh, here is, and studies show this, that when you have better access to primary care and primary care doctors have more time to spend with patients, the downstream costs dramatically decrease because the unnecessary healthcare overutilization dramatically decreases. By some estimates, 30% of our entire nation's healthcare bill is spent on procedures and tests that are utterly unnecessary and utterly uh, unhelpful. And it has been shown primary care, good primary care upfront decreases that dramatically. Okay. So I think that's great. And I want to transition into kind of exploring, you know, what you've alluded to there, which is, it sounds like we have a primary care problem here in the U.S. And a lot of that has to do with the reimbursement system that we have in place. So Mm -hmm. can we, can we dive into that a little bit more and talk about the current state of primary care and what the impact is not only on patients, but also on providers themselves? Yeah. I don't think I'd be overstating the case to say it's a disaster. If you look at a study done in 2013, somewhere between 30 to 50% of all primary care doctors want to actually leave the field in the next three to five years um, wow. because we're on a treadmill. It's, it's, we're overwhelmed by patients. We're overwhelmed by documentation demands. Medical records have become an insurance billing document rather than a medical record. When I was at the University of Chicago before I left to found ImagineMD, I would literally be facing my computer during my encounters and barely looking at my patients because I had so much documentation and so many boxes I had to check. It's really awful. In fact, I, I used to observe how many of my colleagues, when they reached sort of mid-career, middle age and mid-career, they had sort of this flattened out appearance to them and sort of this distance they had created with their patients. And I sort of always thought to myself, it was just years and years and years of taking care of people flattened you a little bit. But what I realized in the last several years is it's not just taking care of people because plenty of my colleagues from middle age were very enthusiastic, as, as, as enthusiastic as they'd ever been. It really was the system that's been beating primary care doctors down and sort of bringing out, I think, their worst, to be, to be honest. And so when you have 20 minutes scheduled for a patient and uh, 10 of those are often used up by a medical assistant, checking vitals and rooming the patient, getting them in to see you, and you're seeing 20 to 24 patients a day. And for me, especially at the University of Chicago, these are the sickest of the sick. By the end of the day, you're pretty exhausted. And then you have all this follow-up you have to do and no time actually scheduled to do it. So you're doing it often at night completing your notes at night, which completely you know, unbalances your work-life balance so you're not spending as much right. time with your family. It's pretty awful. It's pretty awful. And I think what's happening too, we see medical students are looking at this and saying, why in the world would I want that life? And in fact, that's reflected in uh, the study in JAMA that showed only about 2% of medical students and residents are interested in going into primary care specialties because they see how unhappy a lot of the primary care doctors are. They also are coming out of medical school with maybe a quarter of a million dollars in debt, and you're not going to pay that back very quickly in primary care. You have to go into a specialty. And so what's happening is fewer people are going into primary care. There's an Mm -hmm. acceleration of people wanting to leave primary care when the ACA hit and suddenly all these people had insurance, it exacerbated the shortage or the inability to get to your primary care doctor. So to say we're in a crisis of primary care, I think is not an understatement. And study after study, both in America and abroad in Europe have shown that when you add primary care doctors to the population, in fact, for every one primary care doctor you add per 10,000 people in the population, you actually decrease the risk of dying in that population by about 5%. And the reason for that is actually relatively straightforward, that what most people die from are not sort of dramatic diseases like leukemia. Uh, It's actually 
from poorly managed chronic conditions they've had all their lives that primary care doctors excel in. You know, it's not sexy stuff. It's hypertension, it's congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes. Managing that stuff well is a day in and day out activity that takes a lot of intensive time, a lot of intensive management, but in the end, creates a dramatically different health destiny for the patients you're managing. And specialists are really great at what they do, but that's not what they do. They don't really take care of a lot of these diseases that are the things that are really lead to the number one killer, which is cardiac disease, heart attacks, but even yeah. many of the other things. It's safe to say that you can't really provide quality care in a 10 or 20 minute visit. You know, what happens is you figure out how to do care at all in a 10 or 20 minute visit and you dramatically narrow the scope of what you're able to do and you content yourself by saying, this is what my reality is. I have to do the best I can. But it was really that conundrum I was facing that made me decide to leave the University of Chicago, which I, I never thought I would do. I really loved working there. I loved the mm -hmm. place. But I decided at the end of 20 years there, I really just wanted to practice medicine and I wanted to practice it the way I had a vision to practice it. So, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you can take care of a headache, an ankle sprain, manage a couple of chronic diseases, uh, maybe check hemoglobin A1C if your patient's a diabetic. But in terms of really thinking through a new unknown problem, doing a thorough history and physical exam, thinking, having time to think or even read in the medical literature and sort of develop a differential diagnosis, develop a reasoned, efficient plan to work things up, not to mention to offer emotional support for, you know, what might be a very frightening time. I'm not even talking now about sort of giving education, much less even coaching for lifestyle modification, which takes a long time. And I'm exactly. certainly, you know, and I'm certainly not even talking about managing the anxiety and depression and stress that is epidemic in our society today and addressing those issues in 15 to 20 minutes. You just can't possibly do that. But all those things are what primary care doctors are trained to do. We've just had to divest ourselves of that work because we literally don't have time and we have to focus on the most important things. And we sort of prioritize and we content ourselves thinking, well, this is the best we can do. And I just finally said, I, I, I can't work this way. I, don't, I, I need to work better. From the patient perspective, for a long time in healthcare, there just really hasn't been a, a focus on the consumer experience. And I think if you talk to most people about their experience with healthcare, and generally, it's going to get a pretty low rating. Prior to this interview, you know, you had shared with me some statistics, average wait time for, mm -hmm. you know, somebody to actually get in. So approximately two weeks to get in for preventive care visit. Honestly, you know, here in California, it's a lot, it's a lot longer than that. And just to get in for, you know, acute, you know, care, you know, I'm not feeling well, I want to go in and I want to see my doctor, you know, average of four days. Right. I mean, at that point, Plenty you're, of people yeah. pro pro probably just give up. Like, you're either better or you're dead. I mean, it's right. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. It, well, four days from now, that doesn't help me. Right. I need to see somebody now. So somebody goes to the urgent care or like they go to the ER, right. um, which leads to higher costs. But also, that's just a poor consumer experience yes. in general. Yeah, I think we have completely lost, if we ever had, a uh, focus on, on customer service in healthcare. I mean, it begins from even when, uh, and this has happened every couple of years when I was at the University of Chicago, you know, insurance contracts would change. There would be negotiations and maybe uh, University of Chicago wouldn't be taking an insurance they used to. And this isn't just the University of Chicago. And suddenly, thousands of patients are now out of network when they were seeing you and now have to change doctors. And so insurance companies, frankly, don't care. And hospitals 
don't care as long as they can actually replenish patients with other patients so that they're actually making their revenue targets. And then physicians and nurses and, and healthcare workers really want to give cu good customer service, but the context in which they practice, the models in which they're practicing really work against their ability to do that. They're just overwhelmed and they don't like giving poor service any more than patients like getting poor service. And what's amazing to me is how, I guess this is like grass growing. It has evolved slowly enough that people have just tolerated it. And also because maybe there's no other place for them to vote with their feet. They can't go anywhere else. They figure, well, I like my doctor. My doctor's good. The fact that I have to wait 20 days to get to see him or uh, I wait you know, an hour, he's always behind in the waiting room I'm waiting. I just have to suck that up because otherwise I, I have to give up the good quality of care I'm getting, not realizing that actually all that customer service they're not getting actually impacts the quality of the care. But people haven't had an alternative. There hasn't been anything until sort of, you know, at least with primary care, the direct primary care movement, a new model sort of free physicians up to give the kind of customer service that patients really deserve and, and need. And I think that's a great transition into your company, Imagine MD. So yeah. clearly you've articulated that there was a, a frustration in your current practice with the University mm -hmm. of Chicago and, and your ability to treat and care for your patients. So it sounded like there was some motivation to do something different. So tell our audience about how you branched out from there and what is direct primary care? So I just, I don't want to badmouth the University of Chicago. It's not that they're unique in this way. It really is the healthcare system in general that sort of Absolutely. my frustration. But yeah, so the real story is every 10 years as an internist, I have to recertify my board certification. And so I was coming up for uh, the third time I was taking it and thinking, so, boy, I really thought I'd be retired by now, but no. So I started studying for it and realized that, good Lord, I really love medicine. And that really is why I went to medical school to take care of patients. And at the University of Chicago, I'd done so many other things. I'd run primary care there for seven years. I ran student health for the last five years. And it was really a combination of getting to the end of 20 years and studying for the board exam and sort of rediscovering my love for medicine itself that made me decide it was time to leave because I, I knew about the model of direct primary care, which is also called in some circles concierge medicine for a while. But I really didn't think that it was ready for prime time. I didn't think that uh, the general acceptance level in society was high enough uh, when I first heard about it, which was basically 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But in the inter intervening 10 years, fee-for-service medicine has become so frustrating for people. And my sense was people were looking for an alternative, and it was a way, a model that I could use to practice medicine, as I said before, the way I really wanted to. So in January 2016, I left and uh, opened Imagine MD To answer your question, what is direct primary care? The reason it's called direct primary care is because there is no third-party payer in between the physician and the patient. It is a direct financial relationship and a direct relationship. So in essence, basically, we bill patients insurance for nothing. We, we charge patients directly a monthly fee. It's, it's a membership fee, you could argue. And downtown Chicago, it's $149 a month. And what that gets you in, in our company, and again, in most practices that do this, is unparalleled customer service, the type of customer service that you would expect you would get in mm -hmm. the medical field, right? So for us, that is a new patient appointment is two hours long, almost always scheduled within the week of a patient signing up. Return mm -hmm. appointments are an hour long. Those are scheduled same day or next day when patients call. They get 24-7 access directly to their physicians. Uh, our theory being that the best care that you can get is when you're talking to the physician who knows you best, except for when they're on vacation, yep. you'll get your own physician. That is the secret sauce. It transforms the way we're able to practice medicine. That two-hour visit, let me tell you, we use it and we get into things like uh, stress, anxiety. We talk about not just educating people about how to change their behaviors, say lose weight or quit smoking or start an exercise program, but we actually help them leverage psychology 
their psychology so they can actually begin to behave in a way that helps them reach their goals. And we follow them through time. And we become, even though I kind of hate this term, the gatekeeper. Maybe captain the ship is better so that when they have any problem, they call us first. And we are very careful in how we inject them into the healthcare system. Because if you look at the data, the healthcare system, uh, while amazing and wonderful, is also one of the greatest threats to your health. And so you want to be very careful how and when you encounter it. And so with a primary care doctor and direct primary care as your as your guide, we try to skirt the bad parts and only get you into the good parts. And, and so that's really, in essence, what it is. Now, you still have to have insurance, or we recommend you have insurance, because while yeah, RFE, RFE covers everything we do, and so whether you come and see us once a year for an annual exam or literally once a week, there are no extra charges. Mm-hmm. We, are, uh, you know, we don't want there to be a disincentive for people to come in, so we don't bill insurance, uh, which generates a copay for patients for visits. It doesn't matter whether you do those things. We will see you, and we will sort of be your healthcare coach, your healthcare advocate. I like the idea of having a coach and, and an advocate, but I mean, gosh, a couple of things you, you said there were pretty powerful. Two-hour initial visit. When patients come in, you set aside an hour for them, whether it's, you know, it takes that long or not. 24-7 access via, I would imagine, you know, text or, you know. Phone. Yeah, phone. I mean, yeah, right, right. Really, really yeah. get us quickly. That to me sounds like a much better consumer experience than probably what, what most of us are getting today. Well, you know, it really is. I mean, in the patients who I've had, it's interesting. In the first two hours, I can see some of them are very suspicious. They're like, I'm not sure what I've got myself into here. This is really what I want. And by the end of the, that two-hour visit, uh, there's been a period there where I've watched their eyes sort of widen and their face light up. And they realize this is just an entirely different experience than they have ever had. And yeah. the follow-up is an entirely different experience than they've ever had. In fact, give you an example when patients call, they're not calling a front desk person to set up an appointment. They're actually calling the doctor directly. Because if you think about it, and I've, I've learned this, half the time when a patient calls and says, I need an appointment with Dr. Lickerman, they actually don't need an appointment with me. They need help with something. They don't know whether they need to see me or not. They just think they do. When people call, they actually call our doctors directly. And so half the time when my patients call me and say, I need to come see you, my first uh, question is, well, why? What's going on? Yeah. And I, 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 it's a guesstimate, but I say about 50% of the time, I can actually manage it on the phone so they don't have to come in. It's efficient. And I create a plan for follow-up. Now, the follow-up may be come in uh, if things don't work out the way we want to, but it's the most efficient way to triage uh, a patient's complaint. If you think about it, this is the way it always should have been. The reason it hasn't been is because doctors are simply too busy to answer their own phone. Yeah. But that really is the best way to do it. And look, from a consumer standpoint, I mean, I get to call my doctor, tell him what I'm, what's going on. And hey, if he tells me, hey, this is what I think it is, try this, and I don't have to go into the office, that's a win. I mean, if you're a busy professional, if, you know, whatever you're doing, you're busy, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You've got a life. And so, yeah. And so, in fact, there's a lot of things for which you just don't actually need to see people, which is probably why the rise of some of these telemedicine uh, uh, solutions has, has been so large. I don't think it can substitute for in-office visits and care when necessary, because physical exam is such an important part of the visit, as well as, uh, you know, the need to sort of touch people and, and form relationship with them that way, but it becomes, the driver is no longer, I need to bill you. The driver is, what is the most efficient way to keep you healthy and the best way to accomplish what we need to accomplish? Let's talk about what this means to the provider. Why is direct primary care model better for the provider? It's not even a comparison. Uh, So for me uh, to have two hours to meet with somebody uh, means that I can sit with them and talk with them at a pace that does not stress me out. I never anymore find myself with my hand on the doorknob, leaving the exam room, thinking I'm done, and hear a patient say, oh, oh by the way, doctor, what about that chest pain I've been having? Which was a semi-regular occurrence when I was in the fee-for-service world because you just don't have the time to get everything. So what doctors hate more than anything else 
is feeling like they are not doing their best job, not doing even a good job. And so with this amount of time, I don't feel overwhelmed by my patients anymore. I feel able to take my time, care for them, practice medicine the way I was trained to practice it at a pace that is sustainable and it enables me to have a work-life balance where I can come home at the end of the day and I'm not scrambling to finish my charting. I'm not behind on all my phone calls. I've pretty much got the work done and I've actually been able to spend the amount of time thinking about each of my patients' problems to the proper degree. I spent a lot of time researching and reading, trying to figure things out. I feel like I'm practicing the best medicine of my entire career, that I am catching things and figuring things out and helping people in a way that I never have before. In other dimensions as well, you know, addressing the anxiety and depression that I find, which is epidemic actually coaching people to change their lifestyle. If I could show you the total number of pounds that my patients have lost since they, I started to practice in 2016, because I'm actually not just able to educate them, but coach them and follow up with them and really yes, you know, yes. engage in psychological lever pulling to, to create real sustainable change. Professionally, I'm so much more satisfied. I feel like I've got a balanced life. My stress levels are way down. I'm able to have real human connections with my patients, get to know them, I mean, personally and professionally, it's so much better, hard to describe. And I would imagine also, I mean, this frees you from a lot of the administrative cost and overhead yeah. that was required yeah. in the previous model. I mean, so can yeah. you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I've, he I've heard statistics and please validate this or not, but I've heard statistics that, you know, approximately 30 to 40% of revenue for a primary care practice went to actually overhead towards exactly you know, right. billing, yeah. billing administration. Exactly right. That is exactly right. I mean, you actually have to hire people to uh, keep track of documentation, to actually bill insurance companies to follow up on claims filed. Are we getting paid? You know, things are always delayed and often claims are refused. It's an entire army of people, depending on how big your practice is, that is required to keep track of that. Not to mention, you know, compliance sort of, you know, editing notes or auditing notes, I should say, to make sure that you're documenting appropriately for the level of service you're trying to bill for so that you're not under-documenting or even over-documenting and billing for the wrong level of service. It's an, you know, compliance. It's an enormous overhead, enormous amount of extra administration that you have to do. One of my motivations for starting a direct primary care practice was I wanted to make it simple, simple for me and simple for my patients. So the billing just goes on in the background. It's once a month. It's just, that's all there mm -hmm. is. And when I, I document a medical note, I have no worries that an insurance company is going to ever look at this. It just is truly a medical note designed for other physicians and for myself to look back and understand what went on and what we thought. So uh, yeah, it's uh, an enormous amount of expense, is, uh, which is partly why healthcare is expensive because you have all this administration piled on top of the actual work of medicine that uh, ultimately is really unnecessary. I want to touch on the thing that you alluded to earlier. There's more and more research that is indicating that a lot of the care that we get is, is unnecessary and not evidence-based you know, mm -hmm. medical care. I read a, a crazy statistic that 50% you know, of musculoskeletal procedures are in fact, you know, not evidence-based and really not necessary. And, and I think there was a, a hospital in Seattle that was quoted as, as having, you know, 90% their procedures, not really of any positive impact for the patient at all. So how does direct primary care compared to our current primary care system help reduce unnecessary care in the system? Well, first of all, because direct primary care physicians have so much more time to spend with patients and think things through and take care of them themselves, that alone decreases the downstream referral rate, which decreases the number of times you are intervened on, I should say. The other thing, though, is that in direct primary care, because you have more time, we have more time to be evidence-based. And I'll say in my company, one of the strategies we have for expansion is picking the right doctors. 
not every doctor is as focused on evidence-based medicine as they should be. And so at least with ImagineMD, it's, it's my determination to make sure that you hire doctors who understand the value of evidence-based care and are, are interested in protecting their patients from procedures and interventions that are not proven to help and often may harm. And, and uh, I have a colleague at University of Chicago, a guy named Adam Sifu, who wrote a book called Ending Medical Reversal. And in his book, he shows some data suggesting that upwards of 40% of everything that we do in medicine when studied is later found to be not effective or even harmful. So you have to figure all of the current things that we're doing, yeah. about 40% of them we may maybe shouldn't be doing. There's also a lag in the medical literature between when we discover things don't work and when physicians in general stop doing them. There was just a study came out a little while ago showing that intensive physical therapy is basically equivalent to surgery for torn cartilage in the knee, something called the meniscus. And yet there's a lot of interesting reasons why we are still operating on torn menisci at an alarming rate because uh, you know surgeons don't necessarily believe the data or it hasn't been disseminated, they haven't read the studies, or they just can't imagine it makes any sense. Like we're repairing the meniscus, why wouldn't that help the pain get better faster? And in biology, common sense doesn't always work. You have to do the study. So mm -hmm. direct primary care positions physicians to actually read the studies, to actually practice medicine in accordance with the studies, and uh, have time to think and explain that everything we do has risks. Everything. This is something the general public really does not understand. They think, well, if there's a test, we should just order it, right? What's the harm? Well, there's actually a lot of harm in ordering certain tests because there's false positive rates and false negative rates with every test. And if you believe a test when you shouldn't, whether it's positive or negative, that will often lead you down a path to other interventions that you don't need that put you at risk. And so this is what I meant when I said earlier, the healthcare system itself is one of the greatest threats to our health is that if you misuse it and misinterpret it, you can actually end up uh, harmed by the things we do more than helped. The most poignant thing that, that I heard you just say right now is it gives primary care physicians the time to think. What a novel that concept. That is it. That right is it. There. Yep. Right there. All right. So is direct primary care just for individuals or can employers take advantage of direct primary care? In fact, they can. <laughs> There's a very compelling business case, we believe, especially for self-insured employers to sign up their employees with direct primary care practices. You know, so when you're self-insured, as you know, you're not paying a third-party insurance carrier to take on the risk of insuring your employees. You're taking that risk on yourself, and you usually have a stop loss for any one particular employee who might have a catastrophic, uh, you know, medical problem that is extraordinarily expensive and doesn't bankrupt you. So the only way as a self-employer you can to control medical costs is by limiting unnecessary healthcare overutilization. And as we said earlier, by some measures, that's 30 to 40% of the nation's entire healthcare bill is actually for procedures and tests that are unnecessary. So there's actually really good observational data, case-controlled studies, and even one or two prospective studies that show when you sign up employees with a direct primary care practice and compare them employees who are not in the direct primary care practice, that the um, access is certainly better in the direct primary care practice, but actually it's cheaper. Even though there is the membership fee that we charge, the amount of unnecessary healthcare utilization that direct primary care practices can prevent, cost of that unnecessary healthcare utilization typically is higher than the cost of uh, the direct primary care fees. And while that can vary hugely, obviously, from year to year, and depending sure. on your employee group, the reason for this is actually because, well, I should say it's not because direct primary care physicians are, are by definition, so much more brilliant than fee-for-service physicians. It's that fee-for-service physicians are in a, in a payment model that incentivizes overutilization, and they have become the dramatic outlier. 
So in direct primary care, my thinking is we're sort of bringing medicine back to sort of the level at which it always should have been and has sort of grown monstrously out of control because of the payment models that other physicians are embedded in. We're talking about the fee-for-service model, but you know, in certain parts of the country, uh, like California, capitation is a very mm-hmm. you know, common provider reimbursement form. Mm-hmm. But you know, it seems to me that you know, a physician who's associated with a medical group who's getting paid capitation, they're still in a model that is probably dictating that same 20 minute time frame, you know, with patients. Yeah. So the capitation model, there's probably not the same ability to reduce downstream costs as in a direct primary care model. That, that's right. So a capitation model, like the old time HMOs where uh, an HMO would say to a physician group, here's a batch of patients that we're going to pay you, you know, $100 a head, whatever the price was, take care of them. The problem is because those physicians are still in a fee-for-service model, even though they're not getting paid by visit for those patients necessarily, very few groups were able to survive only on those types of models. And often they were actually held financially responsible, meaning that the group said, the, the insurer said, here's a bucket of money, use this money to take care of our patients, whatever's left over at the end is yours. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's where you're in the really bad situation of having physicians who are financially incentivized to do less for their patients. And you never want a physician to be in that place because then actually their own personal financial is directly opposed to their uh, taking good care of you. The problem there is, again, it ends up being the number of patients that they need to see. And so those models never enabled physicians, primary care physicians, to cut down their patient panels to sustainable levels where they could do what direct primary care physicians should do. And I should say that's the secret sauce, right? So I said before, fee-for-service physicians are practicing with a minimum in general of 2,500 patients in their panel. In Imagine MD and typically around the country, other direct primary care practices, the maximum number of patients is 600. And that's the key. You have to cap it. You're not capping the payment. You're capping the number of patients, which mm-hmm. is where all the downstream benefits from direct primary care are found. You know, if I'm an employer, right, and I'm, I'm interested in this for my employees, obviously, you know, one of the things that employers are interested in is potentially a better experience for their employees, but, you know, they're always going to be looking for cost and ROI. And so, um, you know, you kind of alluded to this, but, you know, are there any return on investment sort of statistics on, you know, an investment in direct primary care will yield a return on investment of X? There are, yeah. Uh, so again, it varies usually year to year and depending on you know, your group. If you have a group of young millennials, uh, the cost savings may not be quite as large as if, say, you have a group of middle-aged or elderly employees with chronic conditions. But there are more and more case studies that are popping up all around the country. There's a really good one by a guy named Mark Watson out of Union County, North Carolina. He actually put up a YouTube video where he shows his results. So he thought about this and he offered direct primary care to his union employees and about half of them took him up on it. And he actually, because he was self-insured, he had all access to all the utilization data, all the costs. And so he just followed the numbers. And at the end of a year, he found that despite the fees for direct primary care, the group that had, uh, been, had enrolled in direct primary care saved about $1.4 million compared to the group that hadn't. And again, it's really just in destroying that downstream demand, you know, yes. reducing that yes. un- unnecessary, all that unnecessary referrals and downstream, you know, lack of access people had to the primary care doctors. So I always say as a direct primary care doctor, my primary goal is not to save a company money. It's to take really good care of their employees. But because everyone else is doing it so badly and so inefficiently, it does save money. It just always does. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, employers inevitably will have employees in different geographical locations, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, they may have to commute to where they work. Talk to me about the geographical access for an employer to a direct primary care physician or location and, and 
how and when, you know, does it make sense? Does an employer need to have most of their employees concentrated in an area? I would assume that would be the case. Yeah. So you're getting at a very important issue that hasn't been solved yet, which is that if you're an employer with a national footprint or anything larger than a regional footprint, there are not these large networks of direct primary care physicians available to sort of wherever your employees happen to be to take care of them. And mm-hmm. so we're looking to expand and we're doing that now. We're basically going where the demand is. And so we are looking to open near-site clinics to employer groups um, that have a regional footprint and place the office in a, in a way that is convenient to patients where they work. Because again, our access is so much better. You know, People will typically come to see us during the workday because we can often accommodate their schedules. But it is a challenge. So those very large companies, which interestingly are not the ones who are leaping forward to try this yet. There are larger bureaucracies, the decision-making and those companies may be more diffuse, harder to, to make a, a change like this. So they tend not to be moving as quickly as smaller, more nimble companies that have, say, one decision maker. But eventually, there will be networks. And even if, the, if it's not all in the same company, there is some interesting work that's being done to sort of loosely connect independent direct primary care doctors in a way that employers with larger footprints can actually take advantage of them, depending on where uh, they may be. The problem is, so, you know, even if you're a huge company and you're all over the country, the likelihood that there's going to be a direct primary care provider right now in every city where you have employees is actually pretty low. So it's a challenging thing for those companies right now. But as more and more doctors enter the space, one of our strategies is to make it easy for doctors to enter the space, right? Doctors typically have terrible business sense and and are very risk averse. And so, you know, converting their practices from fee-for-service to direct primary care is a big step for a lot of them. But Mm -hmm. we have a, a model and a plan where we would, you know, come into where, say, a benefits consultant in a city has self-insured employers who are interested in the model. And if there's a critical mass and we do a, a feasibility study, we will seed an office there and we will find the right doctors who will then come on board with us and help either convert their practice or bring them into our uh, practices, W2 employees. And then they'll be working on the Imagine B banner and servicing those employer groups. And then we would you know, expand and look to sort of get more employer groups on board to build the office up. But we're discovering there is an explosion of demand among self-insured employers now. There are very innovative benefits consultants and advisors mm-hmm. who are learning about DPC and bringing the idea to their, uh, their clients and their clients are saying, sign us up. And so we're, we're just uh, scrambling to actually catch up and we're very excited about it. I'll just tell you, when I initially opened this practice, my, my real goal was just to sort of create a nice lifestyle business for myself to just sort of say, I want to practice medicine the way I want to practice it and, and give great care sure, to a smaller sure. number of people. But as uh, we learned about just how dysfunctional the system is in detail, I have to say it became more of a mission-driven issue for me and sort of the notion of expanding and bringing direct primary care to other markets and sort of seeing how far we can take this because I really believe this is the way to save primary care in America. We're determined to do it. We're determined to sort of expand across the country and fill demand where it exists. Just to give our audience kind of a, a general idea, how many direct primary care practices exist in the United States? I think the statistic right now, there's probably about about 500,000 primary care doctors. I may be wrong about this, but I think there's somewhere around 7,000 direct primary care practices. It's growing. It's growing quickly, but it's still a significant minority of practices. You know, it's interesting, you know, because what we're talking about is scale, right? The Mm -hmm. ability to to scale something like this. While we didn't talk about it, we do have a shortage of primary care doctors in this country. And so in prepping for this interview, I've been reading a little bit. And so there are some critics of mm-hmm. direct primary care. There are some yep. naysayers, right? Yep. What they're saying is basically that direct primary care is already going to exacerbate the problem that we have with the shortage of primary care physicians. So what would yeah. be your response to a critic putting that statement forward? 
my response is uh, there's going to be a shortage that's going to be worse if we don't do something to actually entice medical students and residents to go into primary care. You know, that JAMA study that showed 2% of medical students want to go into primary care, that's, that's a drop from 9% before. And when I was a medical student, it was even higher. The trend is already happening. And, and the reason it's happening is because primary care is so awful. Why would anyone want to go into it, especially when they have a quarter of a million dollars in debt? There's just no reason. If we don't do something to make this an attractive specialty, an attractive mm-hmm. thing to go into, the shortage is only going to get worse. So yeah, I think in the short run, depending on the rate at which there's adoption of direct primary care, you will exacerbate the shortage in areas. And by the way, medical students and residents are beginning to discover this. They're actually saying, oh, there's this other model. I could actually go into primary care and do what I want to do. We're starting to see that happen already. So my answer is, this is the way we actually reverse the trend. There might be a little short-term pain, no doubt. And again, there might not be. But I think long-term, if we don't do something to fix what it's like to be a primary care doctor, there won't be any primary care doctors. No one will go into it. Yeah. I mean, what we're really talking about here is a grassroots revolution in primary care. That's right. That's right. For employers who are interested in this, you know, obviously you're based in Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. And you have the, you have the ability to work with self-insured employers, you know, in that Mm -hmm. general area. But, you know, if I'm an employer and I'm interested, I mean, where do I, partnering with my benefits consultant, where do I start looking for this? Yeah. Well, quite honestly, you can look to us because we are in the process now of expanding across the country, as I said, going where demand is. So okay, we're, okay. we're literally interested in seating offices where there is enough demand. And it's, it's a feasibility study, as I said, and the numbers tell us the answer. If there's enough lives that we can open an office and it doesn't have to be full by day one at all, it doesn't even have to break even by day one. We're interested in spreading it as far and wide as we can. And we have ideas about, so, you know, bringing benefits advisors to create uh, working sessions or presentations for local employers to get them interested in this so that the, the uh, mass enough of employee uh, lives is assembled that we can actually open an office. There are a couple of other companies around the country that are looking to do this. Their models are different. So there's IOR Health, you may have heard of, that I think they do mostly on-site uh, clinics for large uh, companies. Mm-hmm. The answer is talk to your benefits consultant, look around. Uh, you can, you know, there are local DPC providers who might be able to accommodate your employees depending on how many there are. But then honestly, reach out to us because we're looking to expand. You know, it's interesting as, as I listen to you, you talk about this, you know, generally, you know, there's, there's competition among brokers mm-hmm. and benefits consultants. This, right. this to me might seem like the ultimate opportunity for collaboration. You know. oh, oh, you mean between benefits consultants and benefits consultants or benefits consultants? Yes. And CPC? Yeah, yes. no, here's the thing. Yes. This market is so big. It's so enormous. I'm not worried about competition with other DPC doctors. And I think benefits consultants don't need to worry about it with other benefits consultants. A couple of months ago, I was at a conference in Tampa, a Q4 intelligence conference, where all these really innovative consultants came together to learn about some of these things. And they're working together collaboratively. It was really neat to see. I absolutely think so. You know, if you're a benefits consultant, uh, and you're interested in this type of thing, you are so far ahead of your comp- competition as it is because most benefit consultants are just looking to renew their insurance carriers, make their commission and sort of move on. But this wave is coming. And if you're interested in actually introducing your clients to something new and innovative, you will be the leader and you will you will do very well. And there's plenty of other benefits consultants doing it who are willing to talk with you and help you to the benefit of their experience. And in, 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 I mean, DPC is only one of the really innovative new things that's going on, one piece of it. And there's a lot to learn. So uh, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for collaboration. Speaking of collaboration from the, the standpoint of getting together the employer lives to make it viable oh, in, a, in, oh. a, in, a, in a given region. But right. that's, that's where I think there could be collaboration. Absolutely. Among Absolutely. different yes. benefit consultants in a particular yes. geography, in a particular country, right? Because inevitably there might be, you know, six or seven or eight, whatever, self-insured employers, you know, and maybe maybe working with different 
yeah. know, brokers and consultants. In so fact, from that, yeah. that standpoint, that's the opportunity for collaboration that I was, you know, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. About. In fact, that's going on now. There's a couple of areas where we're going to be holding lunch and learns, and we've actually got more than one benefits consultant who are bringing their clients together because if they can assemble a critical mass, everybody wins. We can open an office that all of their clients get direct primary care. They all look like, you know, they all look like stars and they're serving their clients well. Exactly right. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I think, I think this has been a, a great, you know, discussion, you know, around primary care and, and hopefully educational to our audience around, you know, sort of what the, the possibilities are. What are you most excited about right now in your business? Are there any things on the horizon that you, you want to you know, tell the audience about? Honestly, the thing I'm most excited about is how dramatically and quickly demand is blowing up for us. We're literally right now looking in seven markets to open offices and doing feasibility studies. And the notion that we could accelerate the growth of the company and the penetration of DPC into society, the idea that we can actually bring the kind of care people really deserve and need to people that quickly is extraordinarily exciting to me. I I had no idea it was going to happen as fast as it is happening. I'm so encouraged by the benefits consultants that I talk to, because they're the ones, if you think about it, the statistic is 50% of all Americans get their health insurance through their companies, which means that half of America can be affected by the actions that benefits consultants take now to bring them some of these innovative ideas, DPC just being one of them, to actually improve the quality of their lives. And so it's incredibly exciting to me to be a part of this movement. And it really is a grassroots movement. Dave Chase, uh, you know, who uh, is leading the healthcare or the Health Rosetta movement, uh, says the Calvary is not coming from Washington, D.C., and he is so right about that. It's really going to be grassroots movement, individual people, you know, benefits consultants, direct primary care physicians, employers, self-insured employers with, uh, with some courage to say, make a bet on some of these new things, look at the data. Um, it's really happening, and I think it's exciting to be a part of that, and so uh, that's really what gets me up out of, out of bed these days in the morning. If there was one question that I should have asked you, what would it be? Hmm. You did a pretty good job of asking me some excellent questions. I think this has been a great dialogue. So uh, I don't know. I guess I would say, boy, one question. I can't think of a question, but I guess I could think of a thing, which is to say, if you don't take a risk, if you, if you don't like the way things are, you got to actually change your behavior, which can be hard. And by that, I mean, you got to try something different. And uh, this is different. DPC is different, but it is the kind of thing that if you take a chance, uh, it's a very low risk chance, especially with ImagineMD, we don't have a contract other DPCs may or may not, but be open to new things and trying new things. That's how we actually fix the problems we have. I I think we have the ingenuity in this country to try things, experiment and see what works and actually spread the stuff that does. Yeah. Well, I I think above and beyond that, I think people, they need to be Mm open-minded, but they want to, they they have to be open-minded to solving the problem. And first they have to, they have to start with understanding what the problem is too, too often, too often. And this analogy I think is, is relevant with you being a physician what we're doing in the, the brokerage and consulting community is offering solutions that treat symptoms. Mm. And, and yeah. we're not, we're not yeah. offering solutions that treat root causes of the problem. Right. And, and that's where we all need to start with pushing forward the discussion on, on what are the root causes of the problem and then you know, attacking the problem, yeah. literally. Yeah. With, with, with solutions that address the underlying causes. I guess I just say you're right. And that this discussion is going on. There are people like on LinkedIn and in conferences who are actually talking about these things and furthering these things. Join the discussion, get involved, learn about what's available. Because again, as Dave Chase says, the solutions have already been found. We just need to scale them. Let's scale the solutions. Join in. That's part of what this podcast is all about. So great to have you on the show. For those people who want more information about ImagineMD, where can you direct them? Just to our website, www.imaginemd.net. Thanks. All right. Well, on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us. 
think it's been a great conversation and uh, certainly educational for our audience. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to ImagineMD's website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content and interviews we're bringing to you on the show. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher and let us know what you think. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.